Uh, it's sort of embarrassing to ask at this point, but what do you do for work? Me and my roommates have started a, we're starting an internet website. Oh, yeah. cool. What is it? I'll give you the virtual experience, okay? How's that? Let, you're at your computer. Mm -hmm. Who's an actress you like? Mary Tyler Moore? No, that does not work at all. No? No. Okay. Let's say you love Meg Ryan. I do. Great. Who doesn't? Yeah. Let's say you like her so much, mm -hmm. you want to know every movie where she shows her tits. And not just that, but how long into that movie she shows her tits. Come to our webpage exclusively. Type in Meg Ryan. Bam! In the cut. 38 minutes in. 48 minutes in. Like an hour and 10 minutes. She's like naked that whole movie. She does full frontal in that movie. Wow. I should have called her Harry, not Sally. Really? I'll show it to you. I'll show you Meg Ryan's bush. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I actually need to get going. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. We are recording for Contrarians Corner for In The Cut. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and friend, Julio. Julio, we are here today to celebrate the debut of Meg Ryan on The Contrarians. And I guess we just needed to fill the space here, because this would have fit right in line with our erotic thriller arc that we did, but it's just refusing to die. <laughs> I know, it's just, we're Pacino and Godfather 3. Just pulling us right back in. And much like that, the second uh, movie that really my only knowledge of it coming into this, like Jade, was just a reference from uh, a Judd Apatow film. Yep. Literally, my knowledge of this movie was that joke from uh, Knocked Up where he explains, let's say you like Meg Ryan. And so you want to know when she's <laughs> naked in movies. In the cut, 30 minutes in, 40 minutes in. She's like naked that entire movie. Uh, they, they were They were not wrong. I and I am like you. I that's all I knew really uh, about it. I it, so do you even remember when when this movie first came out? Like, do you remember hearing about it? No. Or is it really like knocked up the first time that you heard about it? Knocked up was really the first time I heard about it. I don't know why I would have, but this is that early two thousands. There's a movie it reminded me of called When Jade? Will I? <laughs> no called When Will I Be Loved. It was a movie from around that same time period with Nev Campbell in it, and it's just stylized eroticism is basically what it is. This is a nice way I can I can put it. Um, so I did not know of this. I did not know that Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo starred in a, a rom-com of sorts. Um, 
Jennifer Jason Lee. And then there were two people that popped up in this that I did not expect to see. And I audibly two. reacted at the screen. Yeah. I know one of them for sure. I'm trying to think of the second one. I guess we'll we'll find out. Is it a wrestler? No, no, no. But you're just going to be like, oh, yeah, I guess. It's uh, it's just <laughs> someone that I was like, holy shit. Um, no, this is definitely my first. This was my first viewing of In the Cut uh, on Hulu. Did we both watch it the same way, Julio? Yes. Alex, did you have the experience that I did, which is that every like 15 minutes or so, it would freeze for like half a second? I had that happen like twice, but it wasn't consistent. Keep in mind, um. it took me... I think in you the were end, doing the freezing on purpose. Yeah, I think in the end it took four different sessions for me to get through this completely. Uh, had you seen it before, or is this your first viewing? No, first time. But I, unlike you, I did hear about it. I remember it was a big deal because it was uh, Meg Ryan doing something different, and so it. Uh, when when did this come out? Halloween night of two thousand and three. Okay, so I was already here in the states. I don't know why I was. I thought that this was when I was still in Peru, but I I didn't get to watch it. Like I know I was curious about it, and I, I mean I'm pretty sure it didn't come to College Station for sure. I thought so. it was a late '90s movie. I for sure thought it was late '90s, so I was kind of surprised to see 2003. But it definitely falls in that time frame of basically the music videos that were made in the late '90s. Movies started getting made like that in the early 2000s, so it uh, definitely has that. Uh, I was put back in a certain time period of like commercials and TV and PlayStation three watching this with the, the sepia tone overlay and all that. It definitely did its job of putting me back in time. Not everyone has a cell phone, you know, that type of shit. Mark Ruffalo's mustache. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. Uh, I, I think it's, it's also very fitting because like I said, this is Meg Ryan trying something new and we just, recorded an episode on Hancock, which was Will Smith trying something a little different too. It kind of, it's a carryover theme. And then next episode, we're doing Pain and Gain, which is The Rock trying something new. Yeah, yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see how we feel about that, considering I think we might be closely aligned on our feelings on this. And obviously, we were very closely aligned on our feelings on Hancock, so... Uh, yeah, so it's just the, the trilogy of uh, stepping outside of one's comfort zone. <laughs> and when, how that works out for, I mean, I, I don't know how much research you did on Meg Ryan's career post in the cut, but I can't think of the last time I saw her in a movie. Yeah, just looking at it now, just on her Wikipedia page, it's minimal. I don't know if she's had really a starring role since then, but hey. It's like, where do you go after in the cut? Uh, yeah, it didn't really work out for Mark Ruffalo either. He he, he had nothing to speak of after this. That's the whole point. Well, well, we'll save that for the second half of the podcast. So let's just get right into it. If this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, thank you for giving us a listen, giving us a chance. Uh, to our returning listeners, thank you all all the same. Give us just a minute here while we explain what it is we do to new listeners. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. A lot of times known as Certified Fresh. And then what we'll do is make a case for maybe why it's a little bit overrated. Maybe why there were some aspects of it that uh, shouldn't be celebrated or things that were just kind of swept under the rug by the critics. Uh, on the other side of that coin, we'll find a movie that is lowly rated on Rotten Tomatoes. Those nasty green splotches known as Rotten. And find the positive merit in the film. Make a case for maybe why it was misunderstood or uh, why maybe critics just didn't give it a fair shake. 
all in an effort to prove this shit is subjective. Rotten Tomatoes, especially, is not the end-all, be-all. Make up your own decisions. Uh, but also <laughs> that you can be as over the moon or as cynical about anything if you try hard enough. Um, but that all comprises the first portion of the podcast known as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about these movies we discussed, they just need to hang around to the second half. That's correct. The second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, is when we talk about our real feelings. That's when we stop pretending one way or the other, and we just tell you how we feel about the movie. Uh, Alex, I don't know if I told you, Alex, uh, but uh, our friend Stu from the Stu World Order podcast and website and online empire, he, he's a big fan of ours. He's always commenting on the episodes, and uh, he said that... Uh, he said, I can always tell how Alex feels about the movie during Contrarian's Corner. <laughs> <laughs> he said, but you, he's referring to me, he's like, you, Julio, I can't. Sometimes I really, it really sounds like you like a movie that you don't like or like you hate a movie that you like and, and then you surprise me in Contrarian's Corner, uh, which I took. I guess it's a compliment if you know if calling somebody a good liar is a compliment. You've got a great customer service voice. That's that's one of the things oh, I learned there working you go. with you. That's yeah. it. That's what it is. Oh my, oh my retail experience. Uh, but anyway, when we get to real talk, you'll find out how we really feel about in the cut. Uh, like Stu said, I think that Alex has already tipped his hand, uh, especially if you uh, follow him on Twitter. But uh, but it, even if you don't, uh, you might figure out while we're doing Contrarian's Corner. As for me, uh, well, you just have to wait. Wait till Real Talk, and then we'll tell you how we feel about uh, Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo going at it for almost two hours. That's right. Directed by Jane Campion. Of uh, Have you seen anything else that she's made? A long time ago, I watched The Piano. Mm-hmm. I don't remember much about it. I think that there's... Uh, I think uh, Harvey Keitel plays a Mark Ruffalo role in that one because you you get to see a lot of Keitel. Yeah, that's uh, that. I mean, I think you see his penis. There you go. Uh, Yeah, just looking through her filmography, I think that's the only one that I've heard of. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) She did a movie with Nicole Kidman that I I think I watched in theaters. I don't remember anything about it either, but I think on the strength of the piano, I was like, oh, when that came out in theaters, I went to see it. I think it has John Malkovich. Pfft. Portrait of a woman, maybe. It's interesting you bring up Nicole Kidman. That's one of my first notes. Did you catch Nicole Kidman? Is she the mom? She's the producer on this. Oh. (laughs) No. Uh, Yeah, Nicole Kidman and Jane Campion spent five years developing this film. This was Kidman's producing debut. Kidman was originally cast as Franny, but dropped out because she was getting a divorce and needed more time with her children. So there you go. She also didn't feel comfortable canoodling with mark ruffalo i I, f- I feel more confident that nicole kidman would know how to masturbate whereas uh <laughs> meg ryan does not in this movie <laughs> well that's part of the character alex i think that she she needs mark ruffalo to get her in the, the right path to discover her sexuality which this would be the second film that we <laughs> journey along with mark ruffalo into making a woman discover her sexuality uh yeah, but no, that that's one of the first things that caught me. The opening credits that are set to, um, is it K Sarah Sarah? Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever I hear that, that's I just think of um, the Simpsons, the one where the comet is going to hit Springfield, and then they are all in Flanders bunker, 
and one person has to leave, so they kick Flanders out, and he's just standing, waiting for imminent death, and he starts singing Kesarasara. But the point of that was, I was saying that I noticed when it said produced by Nicole Kidman, I was like, "What the fuck?" Because you know the credits all looked like they were handwritten and shit. Uh, super artsy. So Julio, thirty-three percent. Uh, people just had to get their nasty green splotches in. So what were what were these people throwing these tomatoes at the screen saying? The the rotten tomatoes, the green ones, is it where uh, I have three rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, starting with Joshua Rothkopf from In These Times, who says, Meg Ryan is desperately, unpersuasively naked in Jane Campion's ludicrous erotic thriller. How can you be desperately naked? Mm. Does that apply to Meg Ryan here? Definitely not. <laughs> Unpersuasively, maybe. I'll give you that. But desperately? I, I don't know. I didn't know that uh, nakedness could uh, scream desperation. I mean, there. if we thought about it hard enough, I'm sure there's some movies. Showgirls, that's a movie with desperate, na- uh, <laughs> desperate nudity. <laughs> that is true. Naked <laughs> desperation. <laughs> Well, no, okay. Naked desperation is some—it's—it's it's something else. But desperate nudity, <laughs> showgirls certainly fits the bill. Um, Nell Minow from Common Sense Media says weak plot with grisly middle should have been NC seventeen. Can you imagine the NC seventeen version of this movie, Alex? Not really. What NC seventeens have we done? Crash and showgirls? Is that uh-huh. it? Yeah. And blue is the warmest color. Uh, yes. I mean, if those are the goalposts, this didn't come close. So we, we would have need, needed like some full-on penetration or something going on for this to get put over the top. Uh, and finally, Peter Rayner from New York Magazine slash Vulture. Uh, he says, Campion may have envisioned making Last Tango in the East Village, but the results are closer to a new installment of Red Shoe Diaries. That is a fantastic review. That is so like bitchy, but also like flexes their intelligence without being condescending or overly confident. So that that is a perfect review. With all the ones that you always bring up that I'm just like, fuck you, that one's fantastic. Think about Mr. Rayner. I, I, I wasn't sure. Is Red Shoe Diaries one of those uh, HBO series where they follow prostitutes? Uh, it was a drama series. Oh, <laughs> way it was like mark. <laughs> yeah, well, it was like an erotic drama. It was on one of the premium cable networks. Uh, but yeah, it's you're thinking of... Um, Taxi Cab Confessions. Ta- yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, uh, Real Sex was another show on HBO there towards the end of the millennium. And then fucking Carrie Bradshaw came along and just ruined it for everybody. <laughs> I jest. Um, so like I said, stylized opening credits. It Off the bat, you know immediately what you're in for. This is going to be a late 90s music video meets... Uh, the Born Cam, which was definitely coming into <laughs> focus at that point, or g- coming out of focus, I should say, because <laughs> yep. the first bo- the first Born was two thousand two, and that if this is your first time listening, and you continue to do so, you know that's something I harp on a lot is the overuse of the Born Cam over the past twenty years, and but it would have been fresh as a daisy at this point in time. Yeah, and there's also, uh, I mean, this has not. This is not a movie that has the budget of the Bourne franchise. So mm-hmm. in this case, I understand. If you're Jane Campion and you're just making this indie thriller with Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo. Like, Mark Ruffalo was not a name at the time. And Meg Ryan, I mean, I don't know how much money you, like, investors were giving producers for a movie. 
featuring Meg Ryan that was not a romantic comedy. So I imagine this was kind of an indie project. And so $12 million on the budget. So it was pretty modest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for what you get. I mean, they, they certainly they, they don't have the money to just be laying track <laughs> so they can have dollies all across. Uh, is this in New York? Does this take place in New York? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah all and, over and New York. Some of this movie, they don't even really spring for microphones. There's some of these scenes that aren't even properly mic'd. So such is the life of an indie filmmaker. Yeah, the life of an indie filmmaker. And also, I guess, as, as he'll be exploring this movie, the life of a low-income English teacher. Is that what Meg Ryan does here? It took me a little bit to figure out what she actually does. Um, Franny Avery is Meg Ryan in this movie. Yeah, according to the Wikipedia page, she's an English teacher. Uh, um. She's obviously... At a school district that is fairly liberal in its beliefs because we start, she's meeting with one of her students, Cornelius Webb, and he's working on like this project, this thesis that John Wayne Gacy was innocent, Uh, (laughs) which if you know anything about that case, that is a hell of a claim. So to be able to like make a school project about that, that's that's pretty impressive. Um, and she's like just trying to help him like understand. She speaks kind of in riddles to her students, though, as a lot of uh, English and literature teachers would do. Um, I think it's introduced in the very beginning. Her sister Pauline, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, low key debut when they were contrarians. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was about to say. We all know that I am the world's biggest good time pundit, so that. She's in my good graces already. What's your experience with Jennifer Jason Lee? Like she was was she in Gilmore Girls? I know she had a big show. Uh no, well, I don't know. She's in a she's a mom in a typical on Netflix, which is a show I mentioned before. But before that, because that's fairly recent, and also Hateful Eight is fairly recent. Uh what I know her from, uh Road to Perdition. Hateful Eight's probably the most recent thing that she got a lot of praise for. Uh nominee for an Academy Award for that. So there you go. Uh, yeah, Jennifer Jason Lee, Pauline, the sister of Franny, who is described as her free-spirited half-sister, lives above a strip club. She's introduced very briefly in the beginning. That's kind of why I wanted to go ahead and introduce her. Her, Ruffalo, and Meg Ryan are the three main players, so just want to get that in mind. So Meg Ryan in this kind of the opening, she goes to, is it the Red Turtle, the name of the <laughs> shitty yes. bar they go to, and just talking to her student about writing and I don't it kind of went over my head to be completely honest here some of the dialogue in certain parts of this movie but I think this movie might be too smart for us Alex but that's a okay. very <laughs> very real possibility we're going to do our best though to try to figure it out yes. um while at the red turtle she gives her student some advice student leaves she goes down to the bathroom it's a real shitty place i don't really know why they chose to meet up there but <laughs> she goes down and she's seeing uh, a man in the shadows get receiving fellatio oral sex and all she's really able to take note of is he is at the three of clubs that he has tattooed on his wrist yeah is it th- it's a yeah. is it clubs or spades spades that's it uh three of spades tattooed on his wrist she takes note of that and kind of just goes about her business like it's just <laughs> another day in new york city i couldn't tell what we were looking at once they got to the close-ups <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it happened to you. When it was a wide shot, I was like, okay, that's a dude in the shadows and a girl's head is between his legs and I, I know what's happening. Uh, but then once you got into the close-ups, I got nervous. I was like, I don't know what I'm looking at. And eventually I realized that I was looking at the 
at the tattoo and then they did the close up of the of the hands and when when they did the close up of the hands I was like is that the man's hand or is it the woman's hand with the claw she had man hands <laughs> I couldn't tell and uh no they matter but you're right she uh she takes it in stride have you ever walked in on anyone having sex Alex do you remember your reaction uh I don't know if I walked in on everyone having sex I've walked in on people like messing around and stuff uh I walked into my roommate in high school similar to this getting dome i just kind of laughed and just went about my business uh <laughs> so so you had the i guess the you were forthcoming enough to let them know that you were there yeah well and i i knew those people so it was just something ha <laughs> you're getting your dick sucked on our couch this is funny like if <laughs> i was like walking in public somewhere and some dude was just staring at me smoking a cigarette while getting head i'd be like this is weird <laughs> I'm going to I'm not going to come back to this bar again. Yeah, you're right. She doesn't run to get a manager or, or to at least go At the pay. very least just let the cuz the bartender's like, "Hey, your friend left." And she doesn't even say, "Hey, you need to clean up this operation here." <laughs> the uh the unrated version of the movie, I believe this is this scene is intensely more graphic uh, in terms of like actually seeing the member uh of <laughs> the guy but um, it's still not his face <laughs> no that why would you unblur that 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 keeps the entire movie going <laughs> yeah it says here on the imdb trivia that the unrated scene showed like actual penis and mouth but it was uh what the fuck <laughs> it was just the actress using a, a rubber prop this isn't the brown bunny we're not going real on this <laughs> i was about to say there's a uh, the unrated cut directed by vincent gallo <laughs> they brought him in to guest direct that one scene so, we meet our main character, uh, Franny, English teacher, a woman that her life kind of seems confusing to her in general, and she, it's kind of like, um, I'm surprised you might have one for me in the second half. This could be seen as kind of like a, a retelling of Alice in Wonderland, because it's just kind of this naive woman that... Goes down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, falls down the rabbit hole amongst other holes, and... <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, this movie is a fucking fever dream because this is where it really starts to pick up. There's like this blurriness. All did you notice like all the scenes, the the way shots are framed in a lot of aspects are like blurriness at the top or like mm -hmm. the top corners or something like that. Yeah, it, it's very much of its time. And Julio, for you, when you watch something like this from that era, do you find yourself kind of like rolling your eyes at that stuff, or is it more of like like we've talked about with movies we've done from the 70s and 80s, does it kind of hit you as more of a nostalgia wave of like, hey, I remember when things looked like that? Um, neither, actually. I'll tell you my, my main feeling when watching something like this, and you probably share it somewhat, is, my God, the poor projectionist that had to deal with this movie. <laughs> Just the endless complaints from people saying that it's out of focus and then then you doubting yourself, is it out of focus or not? Because yeah. you're right. The, it's blurry and it moves. The blurriness moves. So I imagine if you don't know that it's right, then you're going to be second-guessing yourself for two hours if you're up there in the projection booth. Uh, my second feeling was just that, to me, this is more, I guess it is somewhat a nostalgic feeling because I, I, to me, it goes back to the, the independent filmmaking of it all and just the fact that 
this is something that a studio movie wouldn't dare do. Studio movies are more of a well, it needs to look good and it needs it can't be risky visually. So it has to be perfectly in focus and perfectly lit and the composition has to be just right. Whereas an indie movie, an indie filmmaker, they're a lot less precious about that. I think that these days, I think the problem is these days you don't really get to play around with that aesthetic that much because yeah. you know, now when you're shooting on your phone, it's like <laughs> the phone is automatically making it like a a big studio. Everyone has movie. an HD camera now in their pocket. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that HD camera is like, it's not going to let you fuck with the just not be steady. Like your phone is going to automatically get rid of the shakiness. Well, and then also like, Back in times like this, where it was really cool, like oh man, the whole movie's washed with sepia tone. Well, you just put an Instagram filter on it. (laughs) Yes. So I could see someone watching this today, someone who you know was maybe born in 2003 or 2005, watch this and say, and not like be impressed with it. You know what I mean? Right. Like I can, I can just make this with my phone. Well, back then you couldn't. Video game systems still had corded controllers, and it was a big deal when movies had sepia tone washed over them. <laughs> yep. Somebody born in 2003, they wouldn't even know that Meg Ryan is playing against type in this movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, who is that? She's only had bit parts since <laughs> since this movie. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you who they would know, and that's who we're introduced to in our next scene, and that is a mustachioed Mark Ruffalo <laughs> Some people know as Bruce Banner and uh, the Incredible Hulk. He's, he's you know, he's fairly popular these days. I hear those Avengers movies have made a couple bucks, so he went on to bigger and better things. Shaved the mustache. He did. And with good cause, you know. As someone who's spent the last, I don't know, 15 years of existence trying to get a decent mustache and figuring out how mustaches work for me pretty well. You know, he's a cop in this, so I think I felt like his character's motivation was that I'm a cop, so I have to have a mustache. And despite the fact that he never really had grown one out before, uh, Giovanni Malloy is his name. What uh, a name. Man, early contender for the Embry here is one Marcus Ruffalo, who up until this point had had some parts, but this was like his first you know, kind of out there movie, but he was also sharing the screen with Meg Ryan, who was a bona fide A-lister at that point in time. So you can tell from the second he shows up on screen, he is going for it. And he made a promise to himself that, you know, I'm not backing down at any point in this movie. It's like, how do I make an impression in Hollywood? I am going to just do all sorts of things to America's sweetheart, Meg Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) And then sit back and let the scripts come in. I am going to grow a mustache and show people my vinegar strokes. And that (laughs) is going to get me the goods. That is going to show people my worth. And it did. So he's here. Detective Malloy. He is investigating a case. We see the tattoo, the three of spades. I can't remember. It's revealed pretty quick with him. But does Meg Ryan take note of it at this this early in the movie? Yeah, we see it because she sees it. Uh, which is something I really appreciated uh, about the movie. Jane Campion's approach, like the perspective that we get. We are always with McRyan. Like we're never, because yes. with thrillers, right? You can always play with how much your audience knows. But we're never either behind McRyan where, you know, she knows more than we do. And we're never ahead of her where we know more than she does. We're always with her. So whenever 
there's a new piece of information. We learn it at the same time as she does. And when she's confused, mm-hmm. we're confused. When she figures something out, we figure something out. So it's that was cool. I mean, I sometimes I think a movie can get boring when you take that approach because there's a sort of a satisfaction to knowing more than the protagonist. And there's also satisfaction to getting a reveal later when the protagonist knows more than you. But when you're on, on the same ground, especially for this type of movie where it's so much about the experience of being Meg Ryan, I, I thought that was perfect. And so, yeah, we find out at the same time as she does. She notices the, the tattoo and then we connect the dots at the same time as she does, which is like, oh, it's the same tattoo from uh, from the bar. This is the guy that was getting a blowjob. Yes, so she meets Detective Malloy. He's there investigating a homicide. What had happened was a woman had been killed and chopped up into pieces, and some of the pieces of her body ended up in Franny's garden. This is what interweaves their stories. You know, they thought they just had a chance encounter where, you know, as you do, you <laughs> see a guy getting a blowjob, and he's actually a detective that is showing up now to investigate this. And then also finding out that it happened near where she was, right? Did it happen at the Red Turtle? Well, they, I guess the the victim was at the Red Turtle at some point. Mm-hmm. Kind of like jumping ahead and, and to keep ourselves on the right track. That makes sense, right? Because the victim is the girl with the, the girl that was giving the blowjob to the yeah. mysterious shadowy figure. So I guess the investigation had taken the, the police all the way up to the Red Turtle. And then they were just asking around and they figure out that Meg Ryan had been there because there was a, a credit card receipt. So she's entangled in more ways than one. And she will entangle herself even more. She can't help herself. Uh, but all of this tension, is, this kind of leads to our first overtly sexual scene with Meg Ryan as the, I guess, the tension of the situation and just the <laughs> unknown that she's wandered into here um, kind of overwhelms her. And it's not unlike the scene in Black Swan where... Yep. Natalie Portman <laughs> masturbates in her bed. The difference here is it really doesn't seem like Meg Ryan's character has ever masturbated before in her life. She doesn't. She like grabs her ankle, and you know, I don't know, Julio. I, hey, I still, whatever I, works. For... I was about to say I will forever be a novice to the the, the female anatomy, uh, but based in my experience, that's typically <laughs> not where you go for. But uh, I might have to try something new. This movie might have taught me some things. <laughs> Based on your experience masturbating as a woman, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I I get you because I I also instantly went to Black Swan, and it certainly seemed like Natalie Portman knew what she was doing, which is weird because the Natalie Portman character was very kind of prudish in that movie. Yeah. And Meg Ryan here, she seems to at least be trying to project this sort of uh, streetwise appearance, but but yeah, she, sexually she seems like. Maybe not so much, um, mm. but it could be, like we said, maybe this movie is smarter than us, and maybe it just some stuff just went over our heads. Maybe this is the right way to masturbate. <laughs> we just don't know. So could be some mind blowing new experience that we don't know about. Just grab your ankle, <laughs> just let her rip. <laughs> She's picked back up the next day by Malloy for more questioning, and he's with his partner. Rodriguez, played by Nick Demichi. Uh, can't say I'm overly familiar with uh, Mr. Demichi, but they're asking her questions about where she was, who she was meeting with. Cornelius Webb, her student. Um, this is where we have this just incredible line uh, after you know finding out she's an English teacher, 
and he's asking how to spell web. He goes, is that with two B's or not two B's? Did you catch that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I lost my shit over that line. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. So I think that we're, we're I mean, we, we haven't even gotten to like the, the thick of uh, the, the problems in McRyan's life. But I think that right now we're deep enough into the story that it's clear. And I don't know how you experience this, but I think around this point, they realized that, oh, this movie is about not just about, oh, what is it like to be the Meg Ryan character in this movie, but also on a bigger canvas, just what it's like to be a woman in New York. I guess and it's funny that we were talking about Sex in the City a little bit ago, because I guess that is also what that show is about. <laughs> but this mm-hmm. is a little grittier and, and maybe more disturbing, which is the idea that Meg Ryan is this. English teacher that has sexual desires. And I think that that's really the main reason why we saw her masturbate, to kind of establish her as a sexual being. Uh, yeah. And it's very different when you're a dude and you can just, I guess, being a dude, you can go and get laid. And more often than not, your life is not in danger. But here, the, the, the one of the many through lines uh, in, in the cut is that Meg Ryan is always in danger. Or at least mm-hmm. it feels like she's always in danger. As as the audience, I never knew who she could trust. Which, like we mentioned, we're always in her headspace. We're always with with her. So that's how the character was feeling, right? Like so, she finds Ruffalo attractive, but we don't know. Like he, as we introduce more characters and we get to know them, it kind of becomes clear that any of them could have been the killer, and that it could be very easily that none of them have their her best interests in mind. In that is kind of like what it's like to be a woman in New York, I guess. And it's something that I normally wouldn't think about. But then I watch a movie like this and I am put in that headspace. So I appreciate it that it just widened my horizons. Did you have that moment of kind of like self-reflection, Alex? And you're like, man, it's really tough being a woman. <laughs> I mean, always. But th- like movies like this that put it in such gruesome detail, it really <laughs> it's that shame, shame. <laughs> All you're left with as a man is shame and pain. Yeah, uh, it it definitely comes to light here because she is, I I guess she's walking to work or whatever, but Ruffalo and his partner just show up and they just, she can't say no. They just get her in the car and then they kind of harass her for a while before they even ask her any relevant questions. You know, she's just there in the backseat and they're just fucking around, but in a way that is, it's just these two strange men with, with guns and a badge. Mm. So it's just the powerlessness. And she takes it in stride. Like she, she doesn't panic, but you can tell that she's ready to go, like get out of here. And, and she can't. Uh, and that feeling is there through the entire movie. So they drop her off. She's going to visit her sister. Mark Ruffalo asks if she wants to meet up for a drink later. This is where the meet cute begins. <laughs> the real meet cute. Yes. This was the other, uh, the guy who, Works the front door at the strip club is Patrice O'Neill. I had no idea he was in this, and I audibly reacted for that. All right, who's that? Patrice is a comedian, actor. He was good. Um, he made me laugh. Yeah, well, he's fucking hilarious. He's got his stand-up's always great. Uh, he was on The Office. He was one of the warehouse workers. He's the one that uh, he tells uh, Kelly to shut up. And like Ryan's, she's like, Ryan, stand up for me. He's like, dude, tell your girl to shut up. And Ryan, that's someone Ryan's like, Kelly, you've offended the man. Please apologize. <laughs> Just obviously a very, very small part. But um, yeah, got love for Patrice. He's there. He works the front door. He shows off his gun because, you know, things are getting dangerous there. 
during the daylight, the sepia tone is almost blinding, but I think it just kind of adds to the, um, I guess, the vigor of this and also just kind of what the state of Franny's mind is at this point, mm-hmm. just kind of being overwhelmed by everything. It, it works out well. But yeah, she meets with her sister. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character is like obsessed with this man. And is, I can't tell if they were previously involved or she's trying to win win him back. But it paints a picture of a, a you know, we were talking about desperation earlier that <laughs> this woman seems to be kind of at her wits end. It she's seems like Franny naked. is the only, yeah, <laughs> she's, it seems like Franny, her sister, is the only stable thing that she has in her life. Uh, later that night, Ruffalo and Meg Ryan grab a drink at a bar. This is a scene I called out earlier that the plight of the independent filmmaker and this scene wasn't even really properly mic'd. I couldn't really hear a lot of the dialogue that was going on. And, that, you know, to be fair, that could all have been intentional. Um, but it's obviously a fish out of water in this case with Franny, you know, the English teacher just being around these degenerate cops that are just <laughs> spewing just filth and talking about women and... <laughs> Ruffalo even says some things that are mildly racist and clearly homophobic. She calls him out on it. She does call him out. Are all cops homophobic? It's pretty great. Um, man, this is this is where I put the note. Like, imagine Mark Ruffalo's Tinder profile because this is the scene where he he's just being really crass in the way that he's seducing Meg Ryan and he tells her, "Look, I can be whatever you want. I can be your friend and fuck you real good, <laughs> or I can." <laughs> Or I can be an asshole. The one thing I'll never do is hit you. Or something. I don't know. It's just that. The the poetry of Again, the, the terror of being a woman. <laughs> yes. She's like she's just looking at him like uh, this is flirting. <laughs> Does this work for you? What's your success rate like with this? <laughs> Swipe left. <laughs> but she goes to leave. Yeah, it's just just quite this sequence. She gets run off by just their depravity and then goes outside the bar. And is like jumped from behind. Someone like tries to grab her and looks like try to choke her out. Uh, yeah. But she's able to get away from uh, scurry away. And as she runs into the street, she just gets hit by a taxi. It's so chaotic and happens so quick that you have like no time to catch your breath. Your reaction is the reaction of the cab driver who just steps out. and He's like, it's not my fault. <laughs> it's not my fault. I did love that. That was one of the most realistic parts of the movie. It was just like right away. You, you did not have the right away. <laughs> not my fault you can use my phone and i'll give you a ride but that's it <laughs> yeah man it's pretty telling that she calls ruffalo instead of right calling away. her yeah. sister you know and then they go back to her place and they end up having sex and okay so julio this is obviously we get full frontal meg ryan and this is the the scene of them unionizing uh <laughs> do you feel that this was intentionally Okay, I would not describe this scene as sexy, nor would I describe their pillow talk afterwards as sexy. Do you think this was meant to make viewers uncomfortable? Oh, absolutely. Dude, I'll tell you one of the most uncomfortable moments in the movie for me is when she when she just gives up. And, and it's like, all right, well, I guess we're having sex. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, Because she, she just went through this traumatic experience. And I guess she calls the one guy that she's like, all right, well... He's kind of a creep, but he can protect me. He's a cop, right? And I almost got mugged, or I got mugged. So I guess that's why she doesn't call her sister, right? Because she, well, she has the card of a guy that he may be gross and whatever, but still it's his job to make sure that she's protected, that she's well. And so Ruffalo shows up, and 
very quickly it becomes an excuse for him to try to seduce her. He's doing like, well, show me how he choked you. And he's just pressing against her and whatever. It's so gross. And then you can tell that moment where Meg Ryan just gives up and she goes yeah. like, okay. And then you cut to them like, you know, Ruffle thing is close off and she's getting close off. And that to me was just gross. Like that set the tone for like, man, that, that kind of sucks. Like she didn't want to have sex. And then she's like, well, what the fuck am I going to do now? You know, he's he's here. Might as well just given and uh yeah what follows the way it's shot and the way that it's uh framed and you're right even like the pillow talk after it's just all very uncomfortable and you're like well that's uh she deserved better (laughs) she's still she has like a fucking bruise in her face from from the mugging and uh ruffle is out there is this where he tells the story of the first time he has sex where he was molested as a 15 year old boy (laughs) yes jesus christ (laughs) It's I'm yeah, and we're not trying to make like a joke about the context. That's literally the story he tells. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 definitely meant to just make you uncomfortable, and you don't even get to see uh, little Ruffalo. <laughs> no, the Hulk was not unleashed uh, on <laughs> no. the set of this. But see, that tells you how carefully they actually planned out the the shots. Because you would think that because the camera moves so much and they focus and whatever, you're like, oh, they're just kind of winging it. Uh, but no, I mean, it requires a lot of care and attention to keep his junk in the shadows at all times. <laughs> so props to Jane Campion and her cinematographer. Next day, Franny's meeting with her sister, Pauline. They're talking over their exploits, you know, all their recent happenings. And then not unlike Matt Damon showing up in Interstellar, Whereas I don't think it was ever really hidden that he was in this movie. It just still took me by, I was gobsmacked by it. Shocked, stunned. <laughs> He's not in the opening credits. No, Kevin Bacon shows up. <laughs> and we quickly learn he's uh, Franny's ex-boyfriend and seems to be a bit unstable. But it's just like Kevin Bacon and the first shot of him is like peering through a window like a dog that sees like his <laughs> owner outside coming back in, in their car. It's <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah, he he definitely seems a little unhinged. And actually, Alex, I don't know if you caught it, because earlier in the movie, the first time that Ruffalo is in Meg Ryan's house when he's just asking her about the the murder, she gets a voicemail, I think, from from Bacon. And I thought I recognized his voice, but I was like, that can't be him because I didn't see him in the opening credits. And then he showed up in this scene. I'm like, it is Kevin Bacon. Yeah, crazy. And he just kind of walks around and... Doesn't he ask if you can, like, come over? It's very uncomfortable. He's clearly an unstable individual. And he's asking her to take care of his dog. Um, and then says that, well, if nobody can take care of the dog, he might have to put the dog down. It's just, what the fuck? Yes, which at this point is when I went on to Does the Dog Die? <laughs> just based on the, the tone of this movie, I didn't want to take any chances. But, no, that's the last we see of the dog. Hopefully, went on to have a better home. <laughs> yes. So would you say uh, Kevin Bacon, early front runner for the supporting actor Embry? Uh, I got to let it ruminate a little bit because he only has two scenes in this. And you know me, I'm not about that Judy Dench, Shakespeare in love life <laughs> of, you know, someone's on screen for seven minutes and then giving him an award of some sort. So we'll we'll have to see when the time comes because uh, he, he just has this in the one other scene where he. Yeah, but I think in this one specifically, he goes through so many emotions because this scene ends with uh, with Meg Ryan saying, I don't think we should see each other anymore. And the way that Kevin Bacon reacts, it's scary, for one, which once again takes you back to like, man, what is it like to be a woman? <laughs> yeah. she's, she's like, from 
everything we've gathered from the information they've dispensed is like they it was pretty casual to begin with because uh, in that voicemail i think he says that they had sex twice and then he says and i'm counting the one that was in the shower so really they took they had sex once and then they had you know sex in, i don't know alex do you count sex in the shower as like a separate instance or is that still part of the the one event yeah when when did that become up for debate is that like a thing <laughs> like if you fuck someone in the shower it's not cheating because i could have gotten away with that for years <laughs> Uh, but anyway, she so he reacts badly to being broken up with, and then he's like, "I don't know, I'm gonna have to think about that." I was like, "It's not up to you, dude." <laughs> yeah, she, she said no, but uh, yeah, I really, I, I guess I've never seen Kevin Bacon this unstable, and it was very, I don't know, I, I got a kick out of it. Yeah, it was definitely different. It really shook up the movie. It, it gave it new life for me as a viewer. Him coming in. Um, Back to Cornelius, and she's reading his report on Gacy. <laughs> it's one of those like sleeves that you would put your book report in to look fancy when you were younger. Uh, again, part of me wishes they would focus a little bit more on this as to how this young man theorized that Gacy was innocent because he had like 10 boys stuffed in his crawl space dead. So I'm curious how I, I, I want to read this report. It doesn't go enough into it. I want to read what this kid's theory is about this. But this is a shot that kind of comes back in later in the movie. Uh, for the aesthetic of it, it looks like he kind of just splattered it with blood to make it look, mm -hmm. you know, kind of fancy. Like another thing you would do when you were younger to like if you wrote like a paper on like an old book or something about like the 1800s, you would burn it around the edges to make it look fancy and crinkle it up and shit and hand it in um so it, it seems like that's what he's going for but she does not seem bothered by this at all she has other things in her mind she's exactly. had sex with mark ruffalo <laughs> exactly no time to process that one of her students thinks one of the most notorious serial killers in american <laughs> history is innocent so then she goes back and meets with uh, Pauline. They have some more talks. This is where we learn about how their parents met, where we get like these vaudevillian style flashbacks. Uh, it sounds like their dad was a real piece of shit. He had five <laughs> yes. different wives and, you know, had different children through all of them. They're only half sisters just by their father. But again, Julio, talking about the, the, the aesthetic of this movie and the look of it. Did this take you out of it at all? The flashbacks with these characters that look nothing like what the reality they've painted is. It just seems really out of place. Yeah, they look like they're out of a silent movie, uh, but mm -hmm. I, I think it pays off. It it took me, I thought it was a little weird, but then towards the end of the movie when Meg Ryan has one of these flashbacks, dream sequences or whatever, and it gets really gory, I felt like they had earned that that big turn, right? Because it's been so sanitized. Yeah. These Because it's always the same thing. Because I guess the story goes that her parents met at a... Uh, was it a skating rink or was it just a frozen lake? I don't know, but they were all, they were skating and her dad left her, his current fiance because he fell for her mom and yeah. he proposed to her on the spot and whatever. And that, so it's been like this old timey looking black and white kind of like sped up hallucination dream sequence or whatever. And yeah, it's, it's very different. And then, so when that, type of scene that aesthetic becomes really gory at the end that was that was pretty cool i was like all right cool if it was uh if it didn't have all the build-up from before it would feel it would have felt really forced at the end but in this case i felt like it was especially because you know what else her world as we see it in the movie is so grimy and so like you know those sepia tones and all that stuff that it makes sense that when she thinks of something that generally makes her happy 
which is the story of how her parents met, they would be so different. It would be so just squeaky clean and look almost, uh, you know, uh, magical. So I think it takes you out of the movie, but with with good reason. Uh, do you buy them as sisters, by the way? The whole thing, anytime a movie introduces the concept of the half-brother or half-sister, it makes it a lot easier for me mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. accept that. But So here, it was like, I can buy it on that level, and then two, their chemistry together is very believable. Yes. I was about to say, I buy them as half-sisters, and their interaction is, you know, physically, and then their interaction is definitely that of sisters. I, They had that, they're very comfortable with each other. They seem very close. Yeah, it's good. I mean, they're really good actresses. So, so it just mm-hmm. and it's good that the chemistry was there. Yeah. Uh, throughout the movie, the ads in the subway seem to be guiding Franny along the way. It, it seems like they're just kind of like those daily posts of affirmation that your aunt posts on Facebook, <laughs> but they seem to be really working in her favor. I, I'm not. I can't guarantee that it's going to pay off, but it. Um, it's definitely it worth. It's uh, it bears mention just because it, it is a repeated. Uh, trope throughout the movie that's her quirk that's her uh it's her quirk i mean it's an indie movie so of course they have to have some quirks these characters and her quirk is that not only does she write those things that she sees in the subway those phrases or whatever but she also whenever she hears a, a word that she's not familiar with or that she finds colorful she writes it down because at mm-hmm. some point uh the first time they meet when mark ruffle is explaining what happened to the first victim and he says that she was I think he says disarticulated, which I'd never heard that word before. He might have been making it up. And Meg Ryan just writes it down like really quick. <laughs> She's like uh, like Camille with her Polaroid camera. <laughs> Camille. The relationship between Franny and uh, Malloy continues to develop. Uh, they have really disgusting phone sex at one point. They go out <laughs> to a lake together and he lets her shoot his gun and she hits him with the, do you ever tell the truth? They're just trying to you know learn more about each other and figure it out. Um, he asks her how long does she think that uh, a woman should know a man before they get engaged, mm-hmm. which is it's creepy on two levels. One is they've known each other for a week. But more importantly, I think that by now they, he has revealed, like the, the investigation has revealed that the, the victim, and now there's been two victims because I think he's there's been a second victim. And that's what Ruffalo keeps saying. Like he can't get the case out of his head. But uh, in both instances, they found the hands and the hands had uh, uh, an engagement ring. Yeah. And so for him to suddenly bring an engagement to Meg Ryan up when that seems to be one of the trademarks of the killer, that's the movie definitely pointing at, Hey, maybe this guy is the killer. Mm-hmm. Cause we saw him, you know, uh, we saw his tattoo in the, in that scene where one of the victims was, <laughs> giving a blowjob to somebody who more than likely was the killer. So so they've, they're setting up Mark Ruffalo as a suspect. But also by now, we've seen how unhinged Kevin Bacon is. So we're like, maybe Kevin Bacon could be out there like doing the killing. And then you have the John Wingazy student who also seems like, well, he's a little weird. So maybe he is a killer. So by my count, you have three suspects already in this thriller. And any of them could be behind those murders. And all of them are circling Meg Ryan very closely. Did you think that he was a killer at this point? No. Did no. you have a suspect? Well, they have that really ominous shot of who you find out is Kevin Bacon later in the movie, like at the beginning, where it shows him just like watching her walk. Right. Uh, yeah, because he reveals that he'd been watching her. I forgot about that. Yeah. At this point in the movie, I just thought that Mark Ruffalo was this just seriously depraved 
sexual deviant that kind of just got off on <laughs> shit. Like, got off on sort of proposing. <laughs> yeah. Just fucking with women's emotions slash pictures of decapitated bodies. That was kind of the thing that he was into. But no, I did not think he was a killer. Uh, speaking of Kevin Bacon, he shows back up at uh, Franny's apartment. He's very moist. And we find out that he said, you know, I hope you don't mind. I took a shower because he knew where her hide key was outside of her apartment. So, yeah, uh, you would think if you had some psychotic ex-boyfriend that was stalking you, you would move your hide key. But I'm a very, very lazy man, so I cannot judge at all for that. Um, she kept putting it off. Yeah. He's just very aggressive. She says that, like, uh, I'm going to go for a walk or she has to go somewhere just to get him out of her apartment and. He's there to tell her that he wants to call her sister and holler at her and see if, you know, they'll go out. And she says, well, I don't think she'll have sex with you. And then that just sets him off the deep end. And he just starts asking strangers if they would have sex with them and punching walls and whatnot. And sadly, this is the last we see of Kevin Bacon in this movie. <laughs> as mysteriously as he enters, he exits. But we don't know that. Again, at the end of this scene, I wouldn't blame anybody for thinking, oh, it's Bacon. Bacon is the one that's been killing people. Oh, he, no he, shit. Yeah. Yeah. He's acting like a lunatic he's, he's acting dangerous and like he could kill somebody well that also plays right into the next scene because uh pauline goes missing he just said you know i'm gonna call pauline right um franny goes over to her apartment to see what's going on <laughs> she knows where the hide key is and she <laughs> these sisters are terrible <laughs> at yes. keeping their doors locked <laughs> It's under a Buddha in a plant right outside of her apartment. Did you notice, though, that Franny rubs the belly of the Buddha before she lifts it up? No. <laughs> Paying her respects, you know? Nice. It's that whole thing of you don't want to piss off any religion's god, just in case. You never know what it's going to come to in the end, you know? Man, it didn't work. No, it didn't, because the key's gone. She rubs the belly, lifts the Buddha, and it's not there, and the uh, the front door's unlocked. It's just open. So she goes in, and the whole place is just fucked up her apartment is just completely destroyed uh in a movie when dealing with decapitations the grossest thing in this besides mark ruffalo's coming face is <laughs> she finds like part of pauline's scalp on yep. her bed it's nauseating it's very gross and so this obviously she her oscar clip i think meg ryan's this whole scene really because you see it, it, once again, we are with her. She is with us. When we see that, we know exactly what happened. And she knows as well. And yet she moves. She doesn't run into the bathroom. She kind of creeps up. She's really afraid of what she's going to find. She finds a fucking bag in the sink. And she's thinking what we're thinking. What's in the Pol bag? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know police head is there. And you can see in her face that she knows as well. But then there's an extra bit of emotion once she opens the bag and she sees that it is actually there and it hits her. So the the gradual uh, confirmation of your worst fears, like that plays out in Meg Ryan's performance. And I think that she, she nails it. It's great. And it's, man, this sequence is just so gory. I was not ready for that, for them oh, to, yeah, dude. to amp it to that level. It'd been dirty and grisly and kind of gross but it hadn't been gory the way that this sequence is no yeah the bathroom's covered in blood like a, a target bag her sister's head is in she picks it up and is just obviously in shock she's like kissing it and just clutching it and holding it not unlike Jason Voorhees in uh, Friday the 13th part 2 with his mother's head which I'm almost positive that's what Jane Campion was going for here <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it sucks. She doesn't know what to do. She's traumatized by this. 
uh, Malloy comes and gets her and he has to kind of wrestle the severed head away from her. It's like, I, I need that bag. <laughs> so they go to the police station. He explains to her in grisly detail what happened and how she was killed. He explains to her that, hey, I have to go back to the apartment to look it over. She says, well, how are you going to get in? He's like, I have a key. And this is where she thinks that, you know, she starts to believe he was the killer, that he stole the key. And, you know, that's how he got into her apartment. She asks him point blank. <laughs> yeah, she's well, first she goes, you have her key. And Mark Ruffalo is such a dick. He goes, I have a key. <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, she just says, did you kill her? And he just looks at her like, get out of here before I punch you. <laughs> I think he actually says, like, get her the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Her sister was just brutally murdered. And, get her the fuck out of here. Get her out of my face. As one would do in this situation, she goes back to her apartment and just gets belligerently drunk. Just has, like, these drunken terrors. And this is what you had mentioned earlier, her flashbacks to the story of her uh, father and her mother meeting and these flashback fantasies just turn horribly uh, violent. She uh, looks like she's drinking a bottle of Smirnoff vodka is what it looks to be. And she's in bad shape and uh, Webb shows back up. Cornelius shows up and he's in bad shape too. He's got beat up by, uh, we find out Malloy was the cop that right. put a hurting on him. And he, for some reason tries to make a move here on, uh, Franny and she tells him no and then that turns kind of violent um, he pins her down and just is like you've been fucking with my head ever since we met and thankfully we don't know where it would have gone but thankfully it didn't go any further than that because Rodriguez is outside the window and he's throwing rocks you know yeah Mark Ruffalo's partner shows up to save the day without exactly. even knowing it <laughs> he shows up to check on her and sees Webb taking off running outside and uh just like, I'm just here to check on you and make sure you're okay. She's clearly not. She's like half of her clothes are ripped off and she's like hanging out the window in really bad shape. But he he just says, you know, all right, well, I'll tell him. And then, of course, <laughs> later that night, Malloy shows back up and it's like pounding on her door and she answers. And this is where she just like is done caring and is starting to like plot her escape or his untimely demise, one or the other. And when he walks in, she's like, where were you? Getting a blowjob? Uh <laughs> Just unreal dialogue here because she's like, what's the expression? No such thing as a bad blowjob. He's like, well, that's not true. Some women have no sense of cock. And Meg Ryan's, <laughs> that's a great expression. No sense of cock. It's just unreal dialogue. If she if she wasn't drunk, she would have written that down as well. No <laughs> sense of cock. Uh, because I did. <laughs> I wrote it down. Um, before we go forward, though, do, do you think once we had that scene with Cornelius Webb where he almost assaulted her or halfway assaulted her. Did you then think that he was the killer? I thought it definitely threw a, a, a new wrinkle in the movie. At that point, I was just like, well, I have no idea who's doing this. Um, so Franny kind of sobers up. She dresses herself up, wears a dress with high heels, comes back in and, you know, kind of initiates sexual activity with uh, Malloy, uh, takes his handcuffs and handcuffs him to like a, a water post in, in her apartment. And so she, you know, just saddles up and starts riding him. And she, you know, he's like, I'll, I'll just watch you. And she's like, oh, you like to watch? And he says, yeah, I like it in the cut. <laughs> what does that mean, Alex? Best original screenplay. <laughs> Have you, had you ever heard that before? Or excuse me, best adapted screenplay. This is based <laughs> yes. on a book. Uh, no, I, I don't know what that means, nor do I really feel like it. I mean, one, <laughs> to, to me, one of the 
um, nastiest. I, I don't know if this is supposed to be like a euphemism for vagina. If he's calling a vagina a cut, <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on. I don't think it is though, because that was my first okay. thought as well. Good. But 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 it doesn't make sense if he says I like it in the cut because she's talking about him watching. So if she was if she was saying oh you like being inside me and he says yeah I like it in the cut okay I I get it gross but I understand where you're coming from, uh, but for him to refer to watching as being in the cut that doesn't make sense. No. According to Urban Dictionary, in the cut primarily refers to a location that is secluded or hard to find, which even then that wouldn't really apply to this situation here. I don't know, man. It was gross coming out of Mark Ruffalo's mouth. That's all I know. <laughs> like most of the things coming out of Mark Ruffalo's mouth in this movie. No shit. It, it made me feel dirty. But then she, you know, goes to completion and as she's kind of messing around. She takes, she's like, give me out of these handcuffs with the keys in my jacket pocket. So she goes rummaging through that and she finds her charm and that had gone missing earlier in the movie. So she thinks that like he stole it and he said, you know, it was from the, the crime scene. You know, I just, I forgot to give it back to you. And this is where she thinks, you know, it was you in the, that night you tried to kill me. And this is where she becomes fully convinced that he's the killer. So she just takes off. And yeah. uh, she, this was this was a really cool bit of like setup too because uh, earlier when they were on their date in the woods, he uh, when he was showing her how to shoot, he ends up somewhat like ripping off. He fucks up his uh, ankle holster, and so mm-hmm. his little gun that he kept there, uh, he ends up putting it in his jacket pocket. And so now when she's looking for the keys and before she finds a charm, she also finds that tiny gun in his pocket. So she keeps that, which ends up playing in the in the climax of the movie so i thought that was really cool like i honestly thought that she was going to shoot him because <laughs> she had the gun right there but yeah she same. she instead just takes off takes off and then runs back into his partner rodriguez and explains you know he's the killer it's like all right well we got to get out of here and she says you know no we can't go to the police he then is like i know where we can go takes her to this secluded location outside the city limits and it obviously I guess she's still kind of drunk because she doesn't see the what the disastrous road ahead of her. <laughs> and then they get wherever they're going, and you know he locks this gate behind him. And then we see that he has the three of spades tattoo as well, and says they got him together after their first big bust or some shit. And then this is where we learn he was the killer all along. She starts putting it together, and he he becomes close, more and more abrasive. And he's getting closer and closer to her with wine, smoking cigarettes, and then pins her up against this fence. And uh, poor Franny thought she could trust one man and couldn't be the case. <laughs> Trusted the wrong one, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And then he proposes to her. He has the ring. He does. He puts it on a knife and sticks it out. He's like, would you marry me, Franny? So she shoots him in the knee. And then sadly, <laughs> she can't muster up the courage to pull the trigger again as he... Goes to, they basically get into a skirmish. They're wrestling around, and then we hear a gunshot go off, and then it fades to black. And when it comes back in, she did shoot him. It was kind of in the fracas. She shot him through the chest, and so he's done for. Yeah, this was the one point where I felt that the movie let me down a little bit because it had been so... Uh, I did not expect a happy ending. Like Maybe halfway through the movie, I was like, there's no way that any of this ends well. And I'm not saying that we got a happy ending, <laughs> all things considered, but... You know things were pretty bad. She he has her pinned against the wall. The hand that she the, the hand with the gun like it's against the gate. So she's she's lost. And then this 
fucker on top of everything kisses her and then we kind of like you know fade to black and then you hear the gunshot but for a moment you know before we heard the gunshot and it just faded to black i was like give me the end credits right here it would be (laughs) just devastatingly uh depressing (laughs) but it would fit with the rest of the movie even though she had a gun she is so outmatched by all these monsters surrounding her that the best she can do is kind of like wound one of them, but she still loses. And uh, it would have been horrible, but it would have made sense. So when we come back and we're like, oh no, she actually got to shoot him and now he's dead. I was like, man, I mean, I'll take it, but it's not great. But then we see her walk back to her apartment and cuddled with with Mark Ruffalo. Who's still handcuffed. He's still handcuffed, and there's, like, mysterious puddles all over the floor. Do you think he pissed himself? I, that's immediately what I thought. He was just like, all right, fuck you. You're going to handcuff me here. I'm going to piss all over your floor. That was, like, his, you know, you're the, the dog that you leave alone too long at home. It's like, all right, well, if you're going to leave me here, fuck you. Or he, my second thought was he tried so hard to break himself from the uh, water post that he may have broken it uh, or, like, cracked it or broke the radiator that was next to him. So whatever the case. uh, Which outcome is worse? Like, if that was your apartment, would you rather come back to a a floor full of uh, Mark Ruffalo's piss or a broken pipe? I mean, cleanup's going to be the same with hardwood floors. If it was carpet, (laughs) it'd be a lot more difficult to deal with. No, Ruffalo piss all day, because then you're going to have to call a plumber to come in. That was uh, my thought, too. Yeah. (laughs) Just make him clean it up when he gets out of there and you'll be fine. <laughs> Rub his face in it. Bad Hulk. Bad Hulk. Uh, he looks so defeated, too. I know. He doesn't like you'd expect with all his aggression and, you know, toxic masculinity throughout this that he would just start cursing her when she came through the door. But he's just like, what are you going to do? I don't know how he got his shirt off, though, because I thought he was shirtless <laughs> there at the end. Oh, he had a button up on. So, yeah, he can take it off. Checks out. Everything in this movie checks out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. Thank you, Jen Campion. (laughs) All right, Julio. There's a a decent amount to discuss about in the cut, so I suggest we move this along to where we can do that, and that is real talk. Are you happy when you wake up? No. How you doing? Do I know you? Detective Malloy? Uh, Miss Avery, there was a homicide in your neighborhood on the 15th. What's all this? Quotes that I like, poetry. I want to do with you what spring does with the cherry trees. My number's there if you remember anything. Give me a call, all right? Do I know you from someplace? Maybe you wouldn't mind taking a look at a few pictures. Take a deep breath. This one's kind of graphic. It was dark, and there was a man and a girl, and I watched. You like that sort of thing, like watching? Somebody asked me out. Ew. Police detective. He's investigating a girl's murder. You know, the one who got cut up. I can be whatever you want me to be. Ain't much I haven't done. Are you dating him? I don't think it's a good idea that we see each other anymore. Well, another girl's been murdered. This guy likes blood. And we are back. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what's in store for them on our patron channel. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. 
So this time around, Alex, we just did, well, I know I just did my Paddington video. That should be up by now. It's possible that by now also your Hunt for the Wilder People video review is up. And obviously, I don't want to know anything about it uh, until, you know, I'm editing it. Yeah, it should definitely be up. We got like two weeks before this episode drops from today, so it should definitely be up by then. Yes. If you want to know how I feel about Paddington, how Alex feels about Hunt for the Wilder People, that's on our Patreon channel. Also, this month we'll have an exclusive uh, Patreon episode about the, I guess, a thriller, Desperate Measures. Demanded by patron Ben from Film Busters. He's giving us desperate measures for the patron channel. And also our bonus episode later this month is on The Master. Alex and I are going to be trashing The Master. (laughs) Any longtime listener of the show knows that we love that movie. So we're going to give it the contrarian treatment. In addition, of course, we're going to have all the the deleted clips that didn't make it into an episode. We'll have our uh, pre-recording notes, which Alex... Fun, fun bit of trivia that our patrons will get to enjoy. The first half of this movie, I mentioned, you know, I, I watched about 30 minutes last night. And uh, it wasn't until I resumed my watching, my note taking this morning, that I realized that I had been taking notes of it as if we were going to talk poorly of the movie. Like, it's a rotten movie. <laughs> and I was just talking shit about it on my notes. So I had to pivot. <laughs> Luckily, all my notes were like, oh, I can I can easily read this and, and give it the positive spin uh, instead. That was fun. Yeah, patrons will get to see those notes in, in all their glory. And then, of course, we have Contrarians After Hours. Sort of the mini spin-off show where we tell you about other things that we're watching, other things that we're playing, that we're reading. Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time? A little bit different. I mean, anyone of our fans who follows me on Twitter or kind of just knows about arrangements knows. I just recently went to Las Vegas, and so we're just kind of kind of talk about traveling during the pandemic that we are facing right now, and kind of what vacation was like, and also that it comes into. I watched several movies from the comfort of Las Vegas hotel beds. <laughs> the best. And way. Uh, yeah, I listened to a few podcasts while I was walking around the strip there by myself. So a couple things to talk about, but just kind of the overall experience of, uh, yeah, like I said, traveling during this global pandemic, what movies were on at the hotels I stayed at. So Vegas 2021, baby. On my end, I am going to be talking about the documentary The Dawn Wall, which is sort of a, it came out before Free Solo, which is a documentary, the one that's documentary, I want to say couple of years ago at the Oscars. Uh, mm-hmm. They're both about men climbing a mountain. I'll tell you about that. And also, I had to face facts and realize that my old tablet that I've had for a few years now was not up to snuff anymore. And I yeah. had to get a new tablet. Yeah. It's basically what I used to read comics and books these days. So I, I download a whole bunch. It has more memory too. So I download a whole bunch of things to read. And uh, one of those things was the first collection of uh, the Injustice comics. And listeners have probably heard me and you talk about the Injustice video game a few times by now. And I knew that there were comics, mm-hmm. but I'd never even checked them out. And so I did. This was so much better than I expected <laughs> what, what I read. And there's this was year one, and there's like four more years, I think, that have been published. But anyway, I'll be talking about that as well. So uh, the Injustice comics, the Dawn Wall and Mountain Climbing, and then Alex's Adventures in Vegas. That sounds amazing uh, for, for After Hours. Quite the lineup. Y'all know the drill. If you like what you hear here, 
Go on over, throw us a buck or two, see what you like there. Give it a sample. Tell us what you want to hear from us. We'll provide it. We do our best to accommodate. We've watched Hancock, for Christ's sake. It shouldn't really be questioned what we'll do. It's the prototypical American model. We will do what it takes to make your money. <laughs> That's correct. Just head over to patreon.com slash Prime. Check out our tiers. Uh, just decide uh, how much you want to contribute if you want to contribute. And just enjoy all the perks of the contrarian supplements. And now, let's go into... Let's go into the cut. And now, the dramatic conclusion to the contrarians in the cut. Yes. Let's go to Real Talk. Released on October 31st of 2003 with a budget of $12 million and a box office return of a little bit under $24 million. Should not be considered a success in any aspect. <laughs> 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. I, honest to God, hadn't even really considered it until you had mentioned it uh, when we started Contrarian's Corner. Do people view this as having greatly adversely affected Meg Ryan's career? I don't know. I I think, I don't remember if I mentioned it. I think I mentioned it before we started recording, but I was a huge Meg Ryan fan in the 90s, just kind of growing up and just absorbing movies. To me, she was... Uh, you know, she was a movie star and she was in so many big hits. You know, to me, when Harry met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, uh, even You've Got Mail, you know, it, she's just so perfect. And there's other movies in her filmography that I haven't even seen, but I was still aware of. You know, she has the one where. Does she have the one with Hugh Jackman? No, she has one with Kevin Klein. I think it's called French Kiss. But, you know, to me, she was just like somebody who was going to be there forever. Like there was Lauren Bacall back in the day, like Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. And then we had. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. And I figured that, you know, once a decade, they'll get together and do a, a romantic comedy and it'll be that way until the end of our days. And then at some point, it just kind of, that didn't happen. She, I know that there was, part of it was that, at least in my perception, she fell from grace in the the public eye because she cheated on uh, Dennis Quaid with Russell Crowe. Like I know that that was like a big uh, yes. scandal, and uh, I imagine the whole story is more complex than that. From what I recall, she made a movie with Russell Crowe, which was shot at least partly in Peru. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I remember. And uh, and then there were photos of them just being intimate or being just kind of, you know, cuddly or whatever. And then sometime later, Dennis Quaid. I guess they, they filed for divorce. I don't know, but it was like a big thing. And suddenly it was like, oh, but it's Meg Ryan. She's supposed to be innocent and uh and then suddenly in real life it turns out that she wasn't so i remember that being kind of like a big thing that impacted her image negatively which might have also impacted her career negatively now did that happen before or after in the cut i don't know i do know that after in the cut i didn't really hear about her much more i mean i know she has some movies and i know working at the theater i think i screened uh i think it's called the women um, yes. You, yeah, I, I remember screening that one, and she's there, and it's kind of a, it's not what you think of when you think of a Meg Ryan movie, but it's, I mean, she was clearly the lead. It was, it was an ensemble, but she was like the main character there. And but I don't know. I mean, you know, she's not the star that she was in the '90s when I was growing up. So I don't know. I mean, it could be, or it, it could be at least a, a contributing factor to just her. I'd forgotten all about that movie, The Women. The Women, yes, has a uh, Grace from uh, Will and Grace in it. 
Could have called uh, In the Cut the Men. <laughs> we're just all the same. <laughs> so I guess that's the point. She was like a bona fide superstar, A-lister. And then this was definitely her trying something different. Okay. <laughs> it gave us uh, Mark Ruffalo, that's for sure. At least, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that guy would have been a rousing success regardless of this movie, but uh, that's what I can pinpoint as a positive, is saying it uh, sprung him to a, a, an upper echelon, a higher echelon. And Jennifer Jason Lee for her small part in this, she's pretty good. Kevin Bacon's fine. It's just... Hulu, is this movie supposed to be sexy? Like, are we supposed to find it attract, like, sultry? Uh, I'm not familiar with the book in the cut that it's based on by Suzanne Moore. Uh, Susanna Moore, excuse me. It was a thriller novel. Plot follows an English professor at New York University who becomes entangled in a sexual relationship with a detective investigating a series of gruesome murders in her neighborhood. So it's not like the it's not like this was like uh, loosely based on. It sounds like it's pretty uh, similar to. So yeah, back to my question: Is this supposed to fall in line with our sexy, sexy thrillers, <laughs> erotic thrillers? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, I but I mean, I could be wrong. I, I don't think it's meant to because I, I wasn't getting Contreras Corner. I think that the, the the best thing I can say about this movie is that it does a pretty good job at depicting Meg Ryan's headspace and Meg Ryan's kind of vulnerability in the jungle, so to speak. So when you look at it in that context, well, no, it's not supposed to be sexy. I think it's supposed to be more disturbing than anything, or you know, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable that you can't trust any of these men, and she's having sex with one of them, and the other two clearly want to have sex with her, and so I don't know. I mean, I I, I didn't think so. It's certainly not meant to be sexy the way that like Jade, right? <laughs> Jade, yeah, was in a way, gratuitous, in the way that it just depicted, you know, oh, we'll just have Linda Fiorentino be naked in this scene because, you know, she's on the phone, but she's naked. Uh, well, I mean, they had that disturbing, like, sex scene later on in the video, but, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that when I think uh, of Joe Esser has movies, you know, which, fuck, we've done two of them almost back-to-back on the show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to me, that's, like, that guy is trying to titillate and I don't think In the Cut was trying to do that. I did, it didn't strike me that. If that if, if In the Cut was trying to do that, then they got the wrong director because Jane Campion is not going for that. I feel like she's going for uh, a grimier feel, not just in the sex scenes, but overall through the entire movie. So I'm going to say no. Fully open to you know just somebody telling me that I completely missed the point of the movie and that this movie is about Meg Ryan reclaiming her sexuality. <laughs> I, I don't think so, but... <laughs> Yeah, when I was watching it, I was thinking, I was like operating under the idea that this was supposed to be uh, an erotic thriller, or like, you know, a sexually captivating movie. So, like, during the scene where they're like naked laying in bed and Mark Ruffalo is talking about how he was molested when he was 15, I was like, is this supposed to be like sexy? Like, is this <laughs> supposed to be attractive? What's going on here? And through the process of Contrarian's Corner and some of the things we talked about, I'm way more in line now siding with the idea that this movie's supposed to be a cautionary tale for women, uh, that men just fucking suck, which is not wrong. Uh, and like the dangers and the perils of being a woman and the dangers that come even more so when you open yourself up sexually. Um, it's not good, whatever it's going for. It's not good at all. But I I feel if you've never seen this before and you're listening to this, you're going to have a far 
you're going to be far more likely to find something tangible and uh, creatively fulfilling if you go into it not thinking that it's supposed to be wild things or something like that. Basic instinct. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Before we get to the players involved here, we haven't even gotten to the people that like this. Yes. So 33% of Rotten Tomatoes, not good. Uh, box office-wise, major disappointment. Creatively bankrupt. And it's, <laughs> according to the IMDb trivia, the only film that received an F on cinema score from audiences upon its release in 2003. Oh my God, come on now. I, I think that's just the Meg Ryan effect. I think people didn't like seeing Meg Ryan. It was a different universe. Yeah. Like a different time for that. But anyway, Julio, 33%. That means, as we say, of the results submitted, 33% of them were like, yeah, go see this movie. So uh, what were they saying about it? Okay. I, I got a handful of uh, fresh quotes from Rotten Tomatoes' website. And speaking of Meg Ryan, here's Sheila Johnston from the London Evening Standard. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Meg Ryan says... <laughs> I I I realized as I was saying I was like that that was not a good segue. <laughs> anyway, Sheila Johnson from the London Evening Standard says Ryan gives a career redefining performance, and I would get to say that's not wrong. It certainly redefined her career, but maybe for the worst. <laughs> yes, it just killed it. Uh, if it did, I don't know. Andrew Saris from The Observer says, I found the movie reasonably absorbing from moment to moment. And uh, I picked this one because I found that such a pretentious uh, turn of phrase, reasonably absorbing. Absorbing. It's, yeah, it's just absorbing. It either absorbs you yeah. or not. You don't reasonably get absorbed. <laughs> no shit, yeah. Imagine a sponge with that advertising <laughs> campaign. Glade sponges. They reasonably absorb spills. <laughs> Uh, Susan Tavernetti from Palo Alto Weekly says Campion has crafted the female companion piece to Kubrick's hypnotic cautionary Eyes Wide Shut have you seen Eyes Wide Shut Alex? no but I mean that ties in the whole Nicole Kidman thread yeah Uh, I mean Eyes Wide Shut is uh, one longer two better three I I don't know man I, I I, if she is saying that Eyes Wide Shut is about the perils of being a man, a sexually active man in the city, that's a pretty big stretch. I could see it. Like I could, if we were doing Eyes Wide Shut in Contrarian's Corner and we're supposed to be positive about it, I could maybe make that case. But from my memory, Eyes Wide Shut is a lot more complex. Not even like a lot more complex. Eyes Wide Shut is worried more about sexuality in general, I think, not just... Uh, I wouldn't call Eyes Wide Shut the male companion to In the Cut, but yeah. maybe it's just because it's directed by a dude and In the Cut is directed by a female, uh, by a by a gal. Finally, alas, alas there you go, or a dudette. Uh, and finally, Tim Brayton from Antagony and Ecstasy says a failed thriller, if a thriller it was intended to be, but it is a great success as a study of female sexual psychology in a world of hypermasculine violence. When I picked this quote after I already made my notes and decided that that was what I was going to say in Contrarian's uh, <laughs> Corner, but I picked it too close because it's, I mean, I think it's there to be read that way. Hey, man, you changed my entire view on the movie, so. <laughs> I guess it lined up with the way I was experiencing the movie, too. Just uh, It's the danger of, you know, being overly protective of the Meg Ryan character and suddenly that translates as me being patronizing 
of a female character, which is not, you know, but to me, when I see a character like hers going through the things that she goes in this movie, I feel more protective of that character, more worried about that character than I would if you flip the genders and it was, you know, Mark Ruffalo was a writer and Meg Ryan was like this perverted cop that's <laughs> taking advantage of her and, and Mark Ruffalo would be surrounded by women that are preying on him. Like For one, it just becomes like a much weirder movie. But two, I would also have a harder time being worried for Mark Ruffalo the way that I was worried for Meg Ryan in this movie. And so, I mean, that, that it, it's about gender in the end, you know, and just how I experience it as... I guess, a man watching a, a woman in this scenario. And I guess it can also be extended to just what it's like to be a woman in that scenario and what it's like to be a woman watching a woman in that scenario. And maybe even like being a woman making a movie about a woman in this scenario. <laughs> so yeah, there's stuff there. There's, there's stuff that, in my opinion, elevates it above shit like Jade. But then once you get to the actual execution, you've said it a handful of times by now, Alex, it's not good. So tell me why isn't it good? First of all, can you read that last review one more time? Just the opening line of it. A failed thriller, if a thriller it was intended to be. Okay, yeah, because the review wound up sounding really good, but that's so fucking like Dr. Seussian, like trying to... (laughs) I will not fuck you here nor there. I will not fuck you anywhere. (laughs) Will not fuck you in the cut. I will not fuck you in the butt. (laughs) <laughs> first of all again shit looked like this back then especially like late 90s this was a little bit late to the game but just the look of this like i said put me right back to like crt tvs and you know playstation 2 and that type of shit like i was saying earlier but that that's not necessarily a good thing nostalgia is not always good well nostalgia implies a positive you know aspect to it where watching this I'm like, yeah, I get this was like an appeal, like the the, the blurry corners and the flashes and all this shit uh, does not hold up. There are movies that look like this that are probably still good, but just the idea of when you have a bad movie that has a bad aesthetic, <laughs> it, it stands out a lot more. Because I can't decide what the intention was, be it you know sexual thriller or cautionary tale, it still remains that a heavy portion of this movie relies on sexual chemistry and sexual appeal. Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo have no chemistry at all. They could, uh, as we've mentioned earlier, these two would be absolutely delightful in like a fun (laughs) rom-com. That would have been outstanding. But here, when they're both trying to be dark and brooding, Meg Ryan is obviously a very attractive woman and in the role she was in the girl next door like you called out earlier that's a different type of sexy the dark brooding sexy like angelina jolie style not everyone can do that not everyone can do it like michael fassbender or idris elba or something either like mark ruffalo we saw in the kids are all right he's very like infectious and very charming and you know uh, I'm sure many people would describe him as sexy in that movie in terms of just his appeal because it's so natural. He seems, it seems like him. It doesn't, I, I don't watch that and think someone's acting. Same thing with Meg Ryan, like when Harry met Sally. Like you watch that and you're like, this is this is Meg Ryan. And you know, you said you got mail earlier too. Mm. I remember going to see that in the theater as a kid. And the <laughs> chemistry Tom Hanks and her have is so good because it, imagine trying to see Tom Hanks be dark and brooding sexy. Like it's just not going to work. <laughs> But but wouldn't you like to see him try? 
oh, I, I mean, I'm not going to say no. Obviously, <laughs> the answer to that question is yes. But the the reason I'm harping on this so much, and it does not work, neither of them are sexy in a dark and mysterious way. And when that is the the hands you're dealt with a movie like this, it, the house of cards is just going to come a crumbling down. Like there's really nowhere to go from there. Because what you're asking of your main leads is to be like, obviously there is the, the want, the Campion wanted something to be arousing and sexually pleasing about this movie. It's not like the sex scenes are gross or, you know, off-putting. Like some of the things that surround them are, but for what is desired and what I've implied from a good part of this movie, the desired reaction is nullified by the fact that the two leads, while very good actors... Uh, are not capable of pulling off what is wanted. Now, with that being said, I think the movie stumbles ass backwards, like ass over tea kettle into telling an interesting story about it sucks to be a woman and the dangers of being a woman. But then anytime it kind of gets close to extrapolating on that or trying to say something further about it, it just kind of devolves back into uh, here's some sex or here's a severed head. Um <laughs> I, I guess it makes sense. It, it's a movie that has an incredibly simplistic plot that tries to make it a little more complicated than it actually is, if that makes sense. But it's... Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, by the end, when it's revealed that his partner was the killer, it's not even, like, surprising. You figure out 10 minutes into the movie that it's not Mark Ruffalo. Like, you, you know, you you figure out that you're going to be surprised by who it is <laughs> because that's the way the movie's constructed. See, I, I, um, I wouldn't go that far. I, at least I, I didn't. I mean, and this is You not thought a... she was just searching for the danger of having sex with a killer? <laughs> well, no, I felt that, uh, like, to me, I, I somewhat agree with this with you. Like, I think we're coming at this the same way. And that, to me, the worst part of the movie, the, or the part that really doesn't work for me, is the the thriller aspect, which is, I guess, kind of like what that guy said in that last quote, because it's kind of silly. And... A thriller it is not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like that last reveal, I mean, I didn't groan. The manipulation of like, who is it? From a thriller standpoint, it was just pretty uh, unimpressive. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, you're you're working overtime to make me think that any of these guys could have been. You know, you get to the end and she could have revealed that it was Ruffalo. She could have revealed that it was uh, Cornelius. She could have revealed that it was Kevin Bacon. Or she could have revealed that it was this guy that we, you know, never really considered. And it would have fit because the the way that the, the story is constructed, there wasn't a whole lot there to to build up on. You know, it's not like a, a satisfying whodunit where you can go like, oh, I missed all the details, <laughs> you know, that were yeah. leading to this relation. Here it's just like, no, the whole point was to make you think that any of them could have been. And so when just one of them is, and I was like, oh, of course. So that makes it suck as a thriller. I, I think that it makes it good as what we're talking about, you know, the whole like, putting you in the in Meg Ryan's perspective because, yeah, that is... I don't think this is good in any asset or facet, excuse me. And I think that what helped me to get there, though, is that I was not expecting like the, the like the lack of sexiness of the the sex scenes like i didn't take that as negative to me it was just like more confirmation of the way i was reading the movie which was like oh this is just gross <laughs> like, <laughs> you know like i think that if uh if ruffalo and meg ryan had had like their sex scene and it had been just kind of shot the way that something like basic instinct is you know for example and it 
then I would have been like, oh, this is weird. Like when I watch the movie now and I see their sex scene, it's just so depressing and gross and just like off-putting that to me it's of a piece with what the movie, with reading the movie as a, a kind of a parable about what it's like to be a sexually active woman in New York. Yeah, if, if they like glamorize that to where like, oh no, it's actually like them having sex and, you know, having a great time. <laughs> I, I think that that would have muddled the waters for me. To me, like the things that make it not work as a thriller actually work in its favor when it comes to just uh, getting you in the headspace of Meg Ryan's character. We're like, well, all of these guys are threats of different levels. And one of them might turn out to be a deadlier threat than the others. But overall, it's just, it's bad no matter which way you look at it. So in that sense, I was I was good with the movie. But the thing is, like, it's still a thriller. It's still pitched. You know, it has this whole unnecessary to me, like, murder investigation that runs through the entire movie and it, it just didn't that didn't work for me uh most of the time that has no payoff none why <laughs> did this guy kill her sister why was he killing people why was he cutting their heads off why was he disemboweling them yeah it's... you know like there's no reason for like the the death of the sister makes a lot more sense if it's kevin bacon or if it's mark ruffalo even yes. if it's the the student because he mattered also but exactly. Yeah. This, when it's the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the couple Rodriguez, that, it doesn't even know that she exists. Yeah. He just, whoop, what a happenstance. And I don't, I don't know. I, that scene too is so ridiculous where she's like cuddling the severed head. I, I mean, to be fair, I don't know how I'd react in a situation like that, but it's a movie like this. High. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. A movie like this, it's already been absolutely preposterous. I, dude. That whole idea that the college student's gonna like write a paper to prove that John Wayne Gacy was innocent. <laughs> That's the world that this movie lives in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. That tells you all you need to know for all the, you know, what's the expression when you're stretching to reach? You know, grasping at straws and mm-hmm. reaching it, you know, for branches and shit like that. Of all the serial killers in our country's history <laughs> that you could like Bundy, you know, society made a monster. Or Dahmer, you know, his parents, the the world that he lived in created him. I'm I'm way more open to hearing any of that than I'm pretty sure Gacy admitted. Yeah, I killed and <laughs> fucked all those little boys. You know, it's so Meg Ryan because I think that that's another. I, I wonder if I just experienced this movie differently because I can't tell you. I can't. I feel like I'm too close. I'm too close to the cut <laughs> to, to truly judge Meg Ryan's performance in this one because it's such a departure from what I know and I knew what I was getting into because that's one of the few things I knew about this movie was that that was Meg Ryan trying something completely different playing a character she never played before this is not a rom-com it's just it's disconcerting to someone like me that like I said has followed her career you know and really liked her as in a very specific type of role to suddenly see her doing something so different that the shock value I mean, I have to be honest, shock value <laughs> clouds my judgment at this point. I, I was fascinated watching it happen, but that doesn't mean that it's good. I couldn't tell you at this point if it's good or bad, because I come in with no. such a heavy preconception that whether it was good or bad, it was worth it for me just to see her like doing something so different. If I were to ever rewatch in the cut, I might be able to kind of look at it with clearer eyes and just finally go like, okay, this is really not working. But at this point, she, in that sense, she and the movie have the advantage on my end that I'm just watching uh, you know, Meg Ryan do something completely different and it's kind of spellbinding 
regardless of the quality. I don't know if you've had that that experience with a performer before, you know, with an actor or an actress that you felt that you knew really well and then suddenly you watch them do something so different that quality is irrelevant. You're just mesmerized by the fact that they're doing something so different. I, I hate that all things come back to good time, but that was like one of the... <laughs> To me, that was like the big selling point of that movie. I know he did like Cosmopolis and a couple other movies up until that point, but that was so radically, such a radical departure from what we were introduced as to Robert Pattinson that I was just like, holy shit, I've got to see this. So that was like a huge selling point. And yeah, there's plenty others I could I could think of, but we're not here to talk about other actors and actresses. <laughs> uh, we're here to talk about Meg Ryan and in the cut. And for me watching this it was one of those rare experiences of me watching it and going if i didn't know that was meg ryan i would think this is someone that didn't know how to act <laughs> like it was one of those just kind of you know the director's friend or the director's daughter or something it felt like and that's what made it even more um i get upsetting is too dramatic of a term but <laughs> kind of just just ruined baffling. your day <laughs> yeah for real i know meg ryan knows how to act i know she knows what she's doing uh, but it just, again, it felt like not everyone is Brad Pitt. Not everyone is meant to have the range that, you know, the Meryl Streeps of the world have. And I think movies like this prove that. There is absolutely nothing wrong with having a niche. Sometimes you can deviate from it. I, I've put over the movie Maggie several times on here. And, you know, that's as close to, like, Arnold trying to act, and it actually worked. So there there are ways you can deviate from the, the beaten path. But in this case, it was just... It was too much to ask of her. And it really felt like she was uncomfortable. Like, you know, comfort zones sometimes exist for a reason. And, it, yeah, it was it just it didn't work at any level. And then on the other side of the coin, you had Mark Ruffalo, who was like, I guess if I could put it this way, Meg Ryan seemed still kind of she was tiptoeing into doing something like this and mm -hmm. not. Obviously, she uh, did nudity and all that to kind of, I guess, try to start with a clean slate of what she would do or I don't I don't know the motivation behind any of that maybe she it was just like the project she was comfortable doing it with cool all the power to her it seemed like the actual acting and the character and the way she delivered her lines and stuff she still was kind of trying this movie seemed like her trying to find her footing and doing something you know melodramatic like this whereas Mark Ruffalo he went too far he like threw himself <laughs> too far into it he was sexually harassing the crew <laughs> yeah get the fuck out of here like you know he would say that after they finished makeup on him someone get the fuck out of here it which is funny because what five years after this he was wasn't he a cop in zodiac is he yeah he's one of the cops in zodiac i think yeah yeah he's one of the detectives in that which to me is possibly his most underrated performance so this was kind of like I, you know, we always joke about if we met this actor, if for some reason you and I sat down at a table sometime with Mark Ruffalo and it'd be like, so when you did Zodiac, did you just kind of rewatch uh, in the cut and just pull it back about 50%? Was that kind of your idea going into it? Are you kind of with me on that? Like they, I don't know, like I said a little bit earlier, they could, I, I could definitely see a scenario where they have chemistry together, but it feels like they're acting on two different planes. Uh, yes. I agree with that. I think that where where I'm more positive in the movie is that I can see that it, like exactly everything that you've described about Meg Ryan's performance, where it's meant to be that way because she her character is supposed to be 
that out of sorts. So that hesitancy, uh, uh, that kind of bumbling nature of her, the way that she moves around this world, I think that it's meant to reflect that she is, she's not on solid footing when she's around all these characters. I don't know if you feel this way, but I felt that her scenes with Jennifer Jason Lee were kind of some of the strongest. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, I mean, yeah, because it's with another woman and she's actually, she trusts her, she's comfortable with her. So there she feels more like uh, what you would think of a traditional, I guess, good performance, right? But then when she is with with Ruffalo and uh, with the with her student and even Kevin Bacon, she's just kind of, I, I, I mean, I know what you're feeling because I'm like, why don't you just, why aren't you stronger? <laughs> you know, like I, I think... If I want to give Meg Ryan, Jane Campion, the benefit of the doubt, I'm like, that's, but that's what it's meant to be. I think that her performance is meant to just make you feel unsettled. And it's like, yeah, this woman doesn't have it together. Because, and, and this might be actually a bigger problem I have with the movie. It's just that she shouldn't be getting mixed up with any of these people. <laughs> I think that's, yeah. that's the biggest hurdle for me. Like the biggest thing that you have to like. From the jump, like that her character, there's no reason she should be in that scummy bar. Yep. Yeah, exactly. You know, she shouldn't be hanging out with like that student that clearly is attracted to her. And uh and then she shouldn't be getting involved with a cop that's borderline sexually harassing her. And and she should have called the cops on this fucking loser that's obsessed with her, like Kevin Bacon and so on, right? But yeah. then as I say all that, I'm like, all right. Well, but <laughs> that's where you realize we're the problem. That's toxic masculinity shit. Exactly. Right there, I'm man. like, am I victim blaming? <laughs> You know, it's like it's it, she she should also be able to kind of because I am able to go out and experiment and, you know, just date whoever yeah. I want and make mistakes. You know, if like I shouldn't put that judgment on her character, but yet I do, you know, it's mm-hmm. like and so my main thing throughout the movie is like, get the fuck out of there. <laughs> and yeah. And again, what you're saying is something that you and I and specifically me come back to time and time again when we do this podcast. The things you're saying, if this movie was good. And managed mm-hmm, to like mm-hmm. tell a coherent story and pull it off with all this. These aren't things we would be calling out, but this becomes like the Friday the Thirteenth. You know, people in the theater yelling like, "Why would you go into that fucking room right there?" <laughs> it's because the movie, you know, hasn't captivated them to the point of making these. They're not plot holes, but just kind of. <laughs> I guess that's the whole point. There wouldn't be a movie if she saw that guy getting a blowjob and just went to the cops. She's like, hey. <laughs> Take care of this. I got this crazy ex-boyfriend. I need a tail on me at all times. <laughs> yes. The end. <laughs> a Jane Campion film. K, uh, what is it? K Sarah, 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 Sarah plays and then we're out of there. <laughs> so speaking of Jane Campion, uh, so you haven't seen any of her movies, right? That's what you said. No. You're I just aware of the piano. Yes. Yeah. I want to say she's had a sort of resurgence I think, recently. I think solely because that's the movie I've heard that Harvey Keitel takes his dick out in. That's why I know about it. <laughs> well, and uh, Anna Paquin won the Oscar. Yes. that When she was like 12, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She plays the little yeah, girl. Okay. Uh, if I remember yeah. correctly, is uh, Holly Hunter is teaching her. Like, that's the piano. She's like her piano teacher. And Keitel, I think he has sex with Holly Hunter. And that's when you get to see... See him in all his glory. I don't remember enough to make a comparison, like a style comparison or any sort of comparison, I guess, within the cut. But I know it's not, that's not like mainstream cinema. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so I guess that's a comparison. Yeah. Like, I know that the piano was like an artsy, awards baby is, is obviously, it sounds derogatory, but you know, like a, 
it was like an RC movie. It was an art house movie, and then uh, that did well. And then from the very very few things I remember of uh, Portrait of a Lady, same thing. You know, it's like an adaptation of a book, and it's like a period piece. Nicole Kidman, John Malkovich, and just artsy stuff. And now in the cut, which honestly, next to the other two, doesn't come across as that artsy, but it's definitely not mainstream. And I want to say that Jane Campion is behind a recent TV show that got a bunch of critical accolades. Is it Top of the Lake, maybe? So she's had... Continue like, on and I'll confirm that. I feel like she's had like some... and then yeah, she Top had, of the Lake, China Girl. Yeah. And then she, she had like a movie coming out recently. And I don't even know if you, know, you call her resurgence... She just caught the eye of, you know, the media again. So I want to say Top of the Lake was kind of a big deal. That's just from what I gather. Like, the people were talking about it, and it was it got a bunch of nominations uh, at, the, at the Emmys or the Golden Globes or whatever. And so I know that kind of got her back in my mind. And that's one of the reasons why when we're looking for a, for a rotten movie, and I was look, going through our list, I was like, oh, that's right. There's a Jane Campion movie where Meg Ryan decided to go off script. So one of the reasons I suggested it because I am curious about her filmography. It it almost feels like I know nothing about it, even though now this would be the third movie of hers that I've watched because I remember so little about the piano and Portrait of a Lady, and I was much younger then. So even if I remembered how I felt back then, I would feel like I need to rewatch them to really validate <laughs> my takes. <laughs> and uh, and like I said, I think she has a new movie coming out or a movie that just came out. So I'm curious about watching that. Based on In the Cut, this is what I'll say. To me, she does seem like a filmmaker. She seems like a filmmaker that has a very specific point of view. And, you know, by now, I guess Campion fans will be like, of course she does. <laughs> she's a, she's fucking Jane Campion. Why are you talking about her? Like, like she's somebody that just entered the scene. But what I see in In the Cut, whether it worked or not, doesn't turn me off from her work to where I'll no. be like, oh, yeah, no, this is not what I'm into. Like, the what you could call the affectations of her style here, like, I'll take it. You know, I'll take that even if it doesn't work for me over something that's just shot in a less interesting way. The direction here comes across as something that, you know, has a point of view, it has an intention, and it's, you know, trying to do things its own way. And so bring it. I I, I want more of that. Yeah. I don't, like I said, I don't think that it's very successful here, especially uh, when it comes to all the, the thriller stuff, like the main story, but but I still found it that kind of like with Meg Ryan's performance, where I'm just like not a hundred percent sure that this is good or bad, but I can't stop watching. I'm just watching it because I it's just so off kilter in the way that it's approaching the material that, that it was enough to keep me entertained. So I wouldn't even it, it, that's why I'm really reluctant to go as far as calling it a bad movie. To me, it's more of a weird movie that works for me due to very specific uh, circumstances namely my my attachment and previous history with Meg Ryan as a as an actress and uh just I guess the mindset I had when I was watching it maybe because of the way I was taking notes or whatever I just stumbled into this narrative of like oh this is all about the plight of sexually active woman in New York and and that really once you start trying to like see it through those lenses it just post 9-11 new york no less yes. you thought people loved each other more <laughs> i mean there's a lot of love going around in this movie it just might not be there the is. most uh it may not be expressed in the most healthy way all this to say i think alex 
that I liked it more than you did. Interesting. I'm even like through this discussion, through Contrarian's Corner and this discussion, I'm actually even mildly positive toward it. Like maybe not so far as to recommend it to anyone without, at least not without giving them fair warning that, look, this is not a, a 90s sexy thriller the way that you would expect. For one, because it was not made in the 90s, but also because it's shot in a very different way and it comes at it in a very different way. If Who's you, Jade? Laura Florentino, is that her name? Yeah, uh, Linda, Linda. Linda, yeah. You gotta, you gotta also set the expectation that Meg Ryan in this is nowhere near as desirable as she is in Jade. <laughs> well, I would say, hey, if you came to uh, in the cut because of that uh, Seth Rogen speech and knocked up, <laughs> nope. Readjust your expectations. <laughs> yeah, it's not as bad as Hancock. I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> We've, no, we've established that Hancock has its own circle of hell that it belongs in. Now, um, honestly, it's one of those episodes where you're uh, talking with you about it and some of your takes on it have kind of, I can't necessarily say garnered more appreciation for me about it, but it's it it's made me realize it's a more interesting movie than I initially gave it credit for. So there's that. That's a positive. It's like our Before, Friday the 13th, 8th episode where <laughs> you opened my eyes to its worth. Before we wrap up, though, we got to bring up here the beautiful blonde elephant in the room. Fucking Kevin Bacon just showing up. Did, okay, I had no idea he was in this. Did you know going in? Nope, nope. That's why okay. when I heard the, his voice, you're really good at recognizing voices, Alex. So did you pick up on on his presence just from that voicemail at first? Uh, no, I didn't catch that. So good catch on your part. But he just showed up outside the window. Like, uh, you know what it reminded me of was the water boy where uh, Fauza Bulk. What's her name? Bulk. Bulk. Fauza uh, Bulk. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Where she's outside the window. And she has that sign that says, want me to kill them. Like they, they, when they showed Kevin Bacon outside of that coffee shop, you know, with the hands over his brow, like looking in. I was like, what is psycho? What the fuck is he doing there? The MAGA hat. Uh, it, oh, I want to, yeah. I want to imagine it was just a happy accident, like uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's. Like, I, I think that's Kevin Bacon. I think he's looking at us. <laughs> and Campion's like, just keep going, keep going. We'll we'll figure it out in post. <laughs> Campion was a big fan of Food Loose. Let's do it. <laughs> yes, she's like, I saw Wild Things. Can we incorporate some of that action here, please? <laughs> yeah, he was great. Um, he's he's I yeah. I loved it. It's Kevin Bacon. I have seen The Woodsman, so this is not, like I said, Contreras Corner, I, I was exaggerating. It's not like I haven't seen him be unhinged before, but he he definitely, it was such a pleasant surprise. I, I thought that he's definitely my favorite performance in the movie, and he, like you said, he has two scenes. And, yeah. But I just felt that he did so much with so little. <laughs> he was scary, he was disturbing, but also somewhat endearing like in a, in a really bad way but you know because he's talking about how miserable his life is and is completely unaware of how miserable he is making uh meg ryan but when he's talking about like oh i spent 18 hours at the hospital and even just the backstory that he's he used to play a doctor in a soap opera and now he is studying to be a doctor and he's like what yeah. in his 30s it's just yeah it, actually I, i'm reading now he was actually uncredited in this that's fun okay so it's not that i missed his his name in the opening bring credit. that shit back man yeah like i i don't know for with the way licensing and rights work anymore if you can actually do that have like an a superstar in your movie uncredited well and of course it wouldn't work the same with you know the internet the way it is but 
Jennifer Jason Lee is good. There's really not too much to say about her. They don't give her too much to do, but like you said, the scenes where her and Meg Ryan are playing off each other are pretty enjoyable. That time capsule look of it would be fine if I enjoyed the movie more uh, for as much as I kind of passive-aggressively joked about it in the first portion. It doesn't really take me out of it because, again, I under I lived through that time period. I knew a lot of music, television, and film looked like that at that point in time, but it, it, it doesn't add anything to it. And much like it doesn't detract, the, the for me, the problem with this movie is the story is just very flimsy and the range of performances is so all over the place. Like, the guy who plays Rodriguez, his actual acting in this is just weird. Like, you know, we meet him, he's like this sexual deviant, but then he's like trying to get to know her and be nicer and like he's playing his acoustic guitar in the middle of the police station and... <laughs> Then he shows up, say anything style, throwing the rocks at her window. And <laughs> Patrice O'Neill was good. Like, seeing him, that was fun. And yeah, he's he's funny because he's a comedian for a living. But I think he just has like the two blink and you miss scenes. Apparently, film critic David Thomas, in his book Moments That Made the Movies, refers to In the Cut as one of the greatest films of the 21st century. Oh, man. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> All right. I was just making sure you weren't going that far. That is uh, when you, you haven't watched enough movies or you've watched too many movies and you just fried. <laughs> it, it was the last movie he saw before he wrote that book after, you know, <laughs> watching every other movie of the 21st century without sleeping once. <laughs> For the things I really harped on this, it's not a good movie at all. But, you know, considering the, the class of movies that I've given an F on here, it does not belong in that class of movies. It's not a movie I have any interest in revisiting. It's not a movie I would recommend to anybody. Um, but I feel like it covered an interesting I wouldn't even call it a blind spot because it's not like something I was like, oh, I haven't seen that. It scratched a very peculiar itch in terms of being a time capsule movie, being a movie that uh, caught a a superstar in Mark Ruffalo early on and caught another superstar in Meg Ryan, which uh, for whatever reason, unfortunately, kind of on the decline and then sprinkled in, you have some other fun performances in it. So it's a it's an interesting movie to watch. I'm fairly positive Jane Campion made the movie she wanted to make. If she didn't, she's welcome to come on and explain otherwise. But um, <laughs> all those things coming together, I give it a D, dead center D. If anyone listening to this has seen this and has any feelings on it that differ from what Julio and I have covered so far, I'd be interested to hear them. Also, being just dudes, I'd be interested to hear a female perspective on this movie. Because, you know, uh, we don't mean to speak for females in sense of, you know, what this movie may or may not be trying to say. But it certainly seems that there, that's part of the part of the story to it. Yeah, I think um, we can Julio, only speak of how we experienced it. And <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, I... Like I said, I'm a little more positive than you. Just barely and kind of like on shaky ground. Because, like I said, I am aware of kind of like my biases going in. So I'm going to give it three stars. I don't know when, how I would revisit this. Uh, so it's going to kind of like stay at those three stars. <laughs> but I I am glad that I kind of like knocked it off the list. Because to me, it's everything that you listed. And in a way, it's just this little kind of, I guess, footnote in history. Because it is, yeah. I think, a significant thing when it comes to Meg Ryan's career. And Meg Ryan is a significant actress when it comes to, you know, the 90s, early 2000s. And at least 
in my experience. And so I'm glad to kind of get that. You know, I find this this was a much higher priority for me than watching the the movie that she made with Russell Crowe, which you could say also is kind of an important landmark in her career for different reasons. But to me, that one seemed more of a generic uh, thriller. This one, at least, is a thriller that seems to be doing something outside the box. So, yeah, I'm 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 glad that we we got out of the way in and that we did it our way with with our contrarian's <laughs> gimmick and then a, a sincere discussion afterwards. So, three stars from me. And by the way, I I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, but Ben, Film Busters Ben, said that he accidentally watched this movie with his mother. So, we, we know at least one more person that has seen it. Less than envious method of watching I, I, or a partner in watching. I'm much, I'm much more grateful to have you watching this with me than my mother. So, <laughs> All right. Well, three stars and a D. Sounds about right. All right, Julio. What's coming up next? Coming up next, a uh, very different movie. This was directed by a woman, starring a woman, giving us a female point of view. But for next episode, which is episode 140, that is a gray area episode. So we went hunting for uh, movies that had a middling Run Tomato score, like right in the middle. Thus, we came to Pain and Gain, a movie we've referenced plenty of times here on the show. And it's time. And like I said, very, very different from In the Cut. Michael Bay directs. So already, testosterone. Out the ears. And then- Michael Bay, Mark Wahlberg, The Rock, just overflowing. Tony Shalhoub, just <laughs> overflowing masculinity. The Falcon, Anthony Mackie. It's going to be a very different movie, but also, I mean, like we said at the beginning of the show, talk about people trying different things. All right. Pain and Gain coming up next. I'm very excited about that. Uh, but that's going to wrap up this episode. So we're going to go ahead and move on into perennial plugs. Start off by giving a thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothgeeser has his hands full, as usual, just writing novels, hosting podcasts, doing art, logos, comics. Check out all his work at his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. You can also contact him on Twitter at Mildemonios. You can email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. You can check out his podcast, Nacion Combi, and Living in Peru. One is about Peruvian current affairs. One is about economy. But he also has a new book. I mentioned a couple times before. It's called uh, Historia del Peru. It's Peruvian history. It's a history book if Peruvian history was peppered with zombie appearances and uh, it's a sort of an anthology sort of a fake history book one of the chapters was written by yours truly so if you live in peru check it out thank you hans for all your support and we like to close out by giving a thanks to Ms. Zoe perez who helps curate our social media game if you haven't already you should go to facebook.com slash contrarian prime give us a like there or on instagram at contrarian prime Zoe edits our videos for us. She creates interactive graphics, makes our posts on our Instagram account and our Facebook account, uh, make them flashy and nice, much better than Julio and I could. So, Zoe, we appreciate the work you do for us. With all that being said, that concludes In the Cut, where Julio and I like to watch it. (laughs) 
With all that being said, that concludes our episode on In the Cut. And that is going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. But even so, I can't go on.